It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. Coming to you from the heart of Silicon Valley, this is CUDA Confidential, the official podcast of the San Jose Barracuda, AHL affiliate of the San Jose Sharks. Now, here's your host, Nick Nolenberger. We are very pleased to be joined by one of the newer members of the San Jose Barracuda organization, assistant coach Kyle Hagel. Kyle, first of all, thank you so much for the time. How are things going? Going, going great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you in San Jose. It's been an incredible change this offseason, really from the top to the bottom in the organization when you look at all the changes for the Sharks, a brand new coaching staff, of course, a new general manager. And the same can be said for the Barracuda. John McCarthy, a former player with the team, a former captain, now takes over as a head coach. And he had to fill out his coaching staff. And you, along with Louis Maswell, joined the staff as assistant coaches. How have things gone since that all came to be? I know you had a kind of a quick turnaround, your season in Seattle and the WHL wrapped up, and then all of a sudden you're in negotiations with San Jose to join the American League Club. So kind of shake down how things shook out as the season concluded for you. Yeah, no, things did happen quickly, like you said. Um, you know, we, we, we were in the finals, the WHL finals, all the way to game six against Edmonton. They, you know, they eventually beat us, and... You know, and in the in the back of my mind, I had thoughts about like, about moving up. But when we were in the playoffs, I just focused in all my attention on trying to like help the help the team win. And uh, you know, heart heartbreaking to to lose in the end, but really proud of our team how hard they competed. And then, you know, just kind of in the aftermath of that, while your while your brain is still like kind of recovering, like decompressing from like just the roller coaster ride of a playoff run. I think it was like. Then either the the next morning, or I think it was two mornings after we got knocked out, I just I got a call from from Johnny, kind of out of the blue, and um, just asked if I would be interested, and I said, yeah, yeah, definitely, 100%. And I didn't uh, really know him uh, personally, but we played against each other, um, you know, several years ago, and also had um, several like former teammates in, in in common like my my roommate from uh, from university played with them and was there for several years a couple other guys and um, you know everybody who d- just describes them as a f- first class teammate like this guy's just awesome awesome and we had some familiarity with each other being that we were on a, like a coaches group zoom conference during um, during covid it's called the coaches campfire that ran like every every week. It was like a two or three hour Zoom clinic once a week for se- for several weeks, 12, 15 weeks maybe during COVID. And we were on a lot of those calls together. So had a little bit of a, a feel for, you know, who each other, you know, w- w- were as a, as a, as coaches. And, you know, didn't really keep in, keep in touch after that, but you know, like our team had some success this year and I was fortunate enough to, to get that call with an opportunity and, you know, went kind of did a couple like Zoom calls, presentations with uh, with Johnny, with uh, with Joe Will and uh, Charlie Townsend also. And, you know, things were, were kind of 
progressed along and then we were able to shake hands at the draft in Montreal which was awesome you know spent a little bit of time together at the coaches conference there and you know watched like part of the first round together um, and then yeah like basically I had one kind of one last call kind of signed the signed the contract at like 8 p.m. on a I think on a Tuesday night and then I was in the in the rink in San Jose at like 7:30 the next morning I caught like a five o'clock flight out of Seattle the next morning to get get down for the last couple of days of development camp and uh, which was which was great to get to, to meet a bunch of the, the players and the rest of the staff you know, uh, Mike Greer get to shake Joe Will's hand in person. It was so yeah, it was a, it was a whirlwind, uh, but uh, super super excited to be joining the team. I'm sure you realized there was incredible interest on their side, given the fact that you, they reached out basically out of the blue, as you noted. But when did you kind of get the inkling that once the process began to move forward, that you really had a chance to to maybe join the staff and those relationships and conversations had gone pretty well. Yeah, I could just kind of, um, I mean, just know, knowing what I knew about about Johnny, I mean, I'm like, I kind of inst- instantly thought like this is like this is a guy who I would want to 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 work with. Like he just, you know, see see the game and and in. In, in a similar vein in terms of like the like the what you what you value as coaches in terms of like character work ethic etc yet can also complement each other in terms of what we what we you know bring to the table and you know I was just like, excited about it right away and then going through a couple of those zoom zoom calls together I don't know you can just kind of kind of feel when you're like hitting on a hitting on a subject or kind of hitting on a certain like theme or of or a tra- train of thought and you can just kind of I, I don't know kind of just to tell that it's a, that it's a, a good fit so no it felt 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 good uh, right away and um, also just excited to, to, to join an organization that's kind of uh, you know like like re resetting with tons of awesome prospects and also easy easy sell to my to my wife and kids more sunshine you know let's get to stay on the west coast and you know just made sense for for the family you know incredible opportunity um you know to 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 move up and work with you know some high quality players and yeah just felt felt like it felt it instantly kind of felt like like the the right fit so I'm, i'm happy that it worked out I want to ask you a little bit about your family. We'll dive into them as we continue along in the in, in the interview. But it's different when you're a player. You get traded. You don't have much of a choice. You're younger too, right? It's easier to be nomadic in your career and just bounce around. But when you've got a family and kids, right, now you have to think about schooling and how they're going to adjust to a new environment. So you mentioned this, the sunshine sales pitch. What else went into informing your wife that this could be a possibility and then presenting it to the kids yeah um you know there's like you said when you're when you're playing like i played on a lot of different teams and it's like okay like you know you got to move like it's the end of the season or start a new year it's like okay like take everything i got pack it in my little four-door mazda if it doesn't fit i don't need it and then boom like i'm done I, like it takes me two hours drive across the continent set up shop like you and it's easy and now, you know, even when I moved to Seattle for my first coaching job, my my daughter, who's uh, five and a half now, she was just little. She was just like whatever, four or five months old, and was still relatively similar process. Now, as you mentioned, it's totally di- totally different. Like we got like, you know, two kids. You got all this all the stuff that that they need. 
you know we live in a bigger space so no it's way more of a process to like move your move your family so it requires some more planning but in terms of the like you said given the thought for whether like will will it be a good fit for the for the kids yeah no like it's the first time where I've ever had to look for a place and consider like oh what school are they are they going to go to like how would this you know work for them kind of as a spot to, to grow up and you know kind of the, the research that we did and, and looking for a place to live um, you know kind of confirmed that this would be a, a great a great spot for them to you know spend some some key kind of developing years of their life with uh, some good schools and and also like opportunities for different activities I know that you know, there's good, like, there looks like there's great minor hockey in, in San Jose and then other sports or activities that they'd be interested in. I think that they'd, you know, have access to, to doing all those things. And my wife is excited about, like, a more, like, walk like walkable community. We, we love where we are in Seattle. One downside of the spot that we live, we love it. We're kind of back right onto a wetland, which is beautiful because we feel close to nature, but kind of have to, have to drive for, for, for just about everything. Like I, I was fortunate enough I could ride my bike to work in Seattle. So I've been a bike commuter for the whole time I've been there. I'm gonna get to continue to do that in San Jose, which is great with the spot we found. Looks like there's, it's really like bike friendly city. So I'll be biking to the to the rink in the morning. But my wife's excited about a just a more like like walkable community type type feel in the spot where we're gonna be living. Talk about riding your bike into work. Since your post-playing career, has fitness still been something that's really important to you? Try to still stay in shape, maybe not to the degree you did as a player, but is that something that still is involved in your life? Yeah, for sure. Not quite the meathead that I used to be, but no, certainly like you know, take pride in having an active lifestyle. My my wife too, like she's um, you know, uh, she d- does like some online fitness instructing, and uh, she's like a, a vegan, like full vegan. So we eat pretty close to that in our household you can't i'm not i can't be, be perfect i mean i think you'd starve to death in junior hockey as a coach if you were like tried to adhere to that 100 percent. you know sometimes you just gotta bend the rules a little bit but no pr- pretty like clean active lifestyles yeah ride my ride my bike to and from the rink every day and even on a even on a day that gets really really hectic where you don't have time to squeeze in a workout like uh, you know i'm like well at least i had you know at least i had 40 minutes on my bike today 20 in and 20 back which can also be good for my mental health too like get, sets up your sets up your day get to break that sweat and decompress at the at the at the end of the day it can help you kind of kind of think if there's problems that you're trying to solve over the course of the day sometimes that bike ride can help you uh, you know see a little more clearly i saw that your your favorite pizza that you mentioned was vegetarian anything was veggie so it makes sense that your wife is a is a vegan and you're falling in in the line as much as possible uh, right. into that diet I want to go all the way back because we're talking to Kyle Hagel, Barracuda assistant coach, all the way back to your early days. You're a Hamilton, Ontario native of suburb of Toronto. What was life like growing up in Hamilton? You've got a couple of younger brothers, but what was life like growing up there? Yeah, don't, I, I would not tell anyone from Hamilton that it's a suburb of Toronto. They would take that very personally. But um, no, like about, about, about an hour from Toronto. Um, gritty city uh my my dad's a you know a unionized steel worker he was for 32 years um you know just a working class family like my mom's a, a dental assistant two younger brothers as you mentioned um they're twins gonna be th- gonna be 34 coming up in a couple weeks so you know a couple three years younger than me 
um, yeah, you know, it's just a you know, minor hockey, minor lacrosse, all growing up, like, um, some time at the lake, like, uh, fishing with my, with my dad in the summer times, those are some of the memories that, uh, you know, were special from, uh, from childhood. I know hockey back home in Canada is somewhat of a, a religious experience. It's so ingrained in the culture. But when in your life did you really fall in love with the sport and, and take it on as something that you wanted to pursue beyond just playing youth hockey? Well, I mean, fell fell in love instantly. Like I, I mean, I can't even really remember like when I fell in love with it because I've just grown like grown up with it my whole life. Like. Yeah, my dad taught me how to how to skate on the outdoor rink nearby where uh, where you know the where I where I grew up. It's like the um, local firefighters actually used to like like to used to flood down like one of the like soccer fields or whatever close by to the house. That's where I learned how to skate as a real little kid. But yeah, I no, just pl- played played minor hockey all the way up. Started getting serious about it. I guess when I was like 13, 13, 14, 15. Um, it was never like an exceptional player, but worked hard. And once it turned into a teenager, I could, you know, make up for some of my lack of skill with some extra work, like, you know, on like off off the ice, like taking care of myself, trying to make myself stronger and fitter. And and um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to, to play college hockey at Princeton University. Um, absolutely, you know, loved it there. Some of my best friends were there. My, you know, my my brother. We never played together at Princeton, but he came in right after I left. So I was class of 2008. He was class of 2012. So we share a lot of the same, you know, teammates and friends. Um, yeah, Guy Gadowski coached me there at Princeton. He's certainly like a mentor of mine in my life, and probably one of the reasons why I wanted to get into coaching after I was done done playing. I want to get into your time at Princeton, but going quickly back to your twin brothers, Jonathan and Mark. Was it a competitive household? You being oh, yeah. <laughs> about four years older, were you picking on the the younger twins? How how did that all shake out? Oh, I mean, t- yeah, com- competitive with everything, of course. Um, when, I don't know if I picked on them. They they would they might say that I did, but um, no, real like really really competitive, like uh, you know with each with each, you know with each other, but um, you know I'll just. You know, I think that's a trait that all three of all three of us shared. Like Mark had a, you know, he had a great hockey hockey career too. Played college, played played pro for several years. Johnny was a better lacrosse player. Johnny played a higher level of lacrosse than Mark or I ever did. He played he played junior A lacrosse for three or four years, um, like indoor box lacrosse. Um, ferocious competitor himself. Yeah, no, like to just no. Certainly, certainly, growing up with those two guys helped kind of. You know, mold the mold the competitive edge that all three of us kind of have. So you stuck at home in Hamilton, played for the Hamilton Red Wings in the OPJHL. So you stay home, you end up getting a scholarship and go on to Princeton in the United States, which is something you you hadn't done at that point. But when did that offer come to be? What was the recruiting process like? And were were there any other additional schools kind of in the mix, or was it Princeton all the way? Um, there were a couple other schools like as soon as Princeton came on board I was like instantly sold I loved it like went down on a on a visit and could just see could see myself living there and studying there and just I just thought it was an awesome awesome environment for hockey and for academics there were a couple other schools I went on a visit to Cornell um, visit to 
uh, Holy Cross, uh, U- UMass, Amherst. Um, yeah, but but as 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 soon as um, as soon as I you know the opportunity to maybe go to Princeton presented itself, I would that I was all in all in on Princeton. Ivy League school. You were a valedictorian in high school. You were on the honor roll, so a really good student. And just to to play Ivy League hockey, you've got to be a great student. What about academics were important to you? And being a student, being an excellent student, was that an important thing for you as well? Yeah, no, for sure. Like my, you know, it start that comes from my parents. Um, they, uh, you know, were like they they were they were honest. They were they were honest. Like right from a from a, a young age, just you know, de- demanded demanded excellent grades, and. Um, and and demand and like couldn't couldn't get away with uh, with not doing a good job on a project or homework or whatever, and you know looking back on it now like as I, as I'm raising my own kids I realize like how important that was that they they just kind of knew what was coming up like when you have a test when you have an exam when you had something due and they just like had their ear really close to what we needed like w- what was coming up for us to make sure that we didn't we didn't slack and um my mom like my mom actually says she's, she's like i was like a homework nazi is the is the word that she used to dis- describe herself in jest but it was it was true and you know it um it, you know it paid off it helped me you know i Certainly wouldn't have got into. Certainly would not have got into Princeton on my academics alone. I did not have the text, the the grades, or the test scores in order to get in. Just as a student, like I definitely needed hockey to help me get in. But you know, the combination of both things, um, you know, it's what helped help me get there. And without them kind of setting that foundation of like work ethic and high expectations for us, probably wouldn't have got to go. And my, my myself and my brother Mark were both able to go, and then. And Johnny, the other brother, he's he's a he's a medical doctor. Like he's a he's actually recently just finally finished his training. He's 34 years old, but he's a he's a pediatric cardiologist who works at um, University of Michigan, and he's you know studied and you know, he went to you know he's studied at University of Toronto at, uh, at Harvard Med School. Like he's you know re- really uh, really proud of him and how much that he's done in his life. But yeah, kind of that. And obviously his grades were the best out of the three of us by by far. His test scores were better than ours by far. But um, yeah, it's kind of just started simply at a young age with just demanding, you know, just demand demand that you get 100% on your first spelling test in grade one or grade two or whatever, and then just basically carry that those expectations all the way through high school and, and university. That's impressive. I mean, two brothers that went to Ivy League schools. Now you've got a, a, another brother who's a doctor as well. Uh, a, a family of high achievers. High school, you wrestled a little bit. How'd that translate yeah. to your hockey game? Yeah, it, um, that was, it was a lot of fun. Like, I, you know what? I, it's interesting that you bring that, that, that up. You've really done your research here. Jeez. Um, the, like, I, th- I do think that more hockey players should do combat sports for a couple reasons number one it just gets you like you gain more familiarity with like how a body can work so like with your body awareness like how you can slip away from someone or when you're vulnerable 
and also the thing like mostly played team sports my whole life you know hockey lacrosse played like you know as a kid baseball and soccer and all that but mostly team sports but when it comes to wrestling or combat sport you're on you're on your own you're on your own there's no one there's no one coming to help you so you can't take any time off if you take time off and try to like there's no there's no one to share the responsibility with if you relax it's it's over you're done like the guy's got you got you pinned or got you wrapped up and um no it was good i think that you know i'm a big believer in kids playing multiple sports and not like specializing too early because you know skills are transferable like even if you want to be a hockey player there's a lot that you can learn from from wrestling like i'm saying like this escapability the ability to like deceive how you play cat and mouse to, to try and you know gain an advantage on your opponent or or get yourself out of a vulnerable position but the other sports too like you know lacrosse for instance i thought helped me so much as a player because you know it wasn't as you know as a hockey player it wasn't a great like puck handler didn't have terrific skills but playing lacrosse like the ball is like a little bit more secure in your in your stick right like it's not you're not quite as at as much risk of like losing it to like an easy poke check so you have a little bit more you know uh bandwidth to make a play because you're not so stressed about losing that ball quite so easily as you would in hockey which then allows you to you know create make a pass like you can and a lot of those plays are similar to hockey right like a give and go play or you know what have you but no just i mean i guess i'm i'm just kind of uh, you know, going off on a tangent here, but the, my point being that, yeah, like the wrestling experience across different sports, I think, um, can really help, you know, help a, a hockey player's develop, development. I think that's a great point for young players that you, you know, as much as people want to specialize in their sport, there's so much value to playing other sports. 100%. And if it's, if anything, it's just not getting burnt and still having a love for it. Absolutely. Like, and that's a huge part of it too. Like you're playing hockey 12 months a year as like an eight year old kid, you might be tapped out. I've seen it. I've seen kids tap out when they're like 16, 17, like good players who don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, like having that, having that break to play something else in the summer can recharge you so that you come back more motivated when it is time to, to play hockey again. Like I remember like feeling like super excited come like August or September as a kid and we're like, okay, yeah, it's hockey time again. Like I've been playing lacrosse for the last several months and that, yeah, that like en enthusiasm, like that, they kind of to the ability to like recharge can just, yeah, drive your kind of enthusiasm for, for, for the sport. Pivoting back to your college time to Princeton, you were a major in politics, if I'm not mistaken. Do you have any interest still in politics? You ever think about kind of following that route? Not, not as a career. No, not not as a career. But like, um, you know, and and at, at Princeton, like being a, a liberal arts university, like not not exactly like an expert. I think that's only you know it's it's about eight politics courses plus my plus my senior thesis. And because uh, they make you kind of take a wide array of classes, but super fascinating um, like courses that I got to, to take there that can still, you know, affect the you know the, the lens in which you you see the world. Like you know, for example, like the you know I wrote my my senior thesis on U.S. and Russian missile defense systems, like post post 9/11. So like how you know the the threat 
had conceivably changed after 9/11, like, and especially like after the, you know, after like the, the collapse of, you know, kind of the Soviet Union, where these missile defense silos, you know, in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, were kind of built to, you know, for one superpower to kind of flex its muscles against the other and protect itself against that type of conflict. Then the threats seem to like change. You know, in the late in the 90s or in the early 2000s, to like rogue states or you know terrorist, you know terrorist sleeper cells or whatever. But now, interesting enough, here we are in 2022, and now the now the theme is changing changing again, right? I and mean, you take a look at the at like the you know the Russian conflict in Ukraine now. It kind of gives me a lens in which to understand like the U like U.S. and Russian relate like relations. So even though I wrote on a slightly you know pretty specific you know, topic and it's a pretty specific moment in time. It allows me to kind of understand the you know the ebbs and flows of this of the U.S. and Russian relationship over time. So, no, I don't really think about it as like a career. I'm all in on hockey. I want to be a hockey coach forever. But um, it's it definitely like has affected the way that I see the world and continue to see the world. I don't want to try to draw a parallel between the Russian and American relationship over these decades, but from a hockey standpoint, as we draw back to, to being a coach and just tactically adjusting to the game, evolving in different ways and ebbing and flowing, do you see any sort of connection just on what you learned through your political background just in school and studying it and just how hockey ebbs and flows too do to a degree and how things change from year to year 100 100% like 100% um, t- tons of different lessons that they took out of that time studying uh, that you know that are, are comparable to, to, to coaching hockey and managing a hockey team like you know like for like for example one thing that I that you know one of the courses I took at at Princeton was like understanding like terrorism. It was like um, you know t- you know terrorism and intelligence reform post nine eleven. And it talks about like the disconnect between um, foreign intelligence and domestic intelligence. Like foreign intelligence was was kind of conducted by the cia domestic intelligence was conducted by by the fbi and they didn't do a good job of communicating with each other and then when these terrorist threats start to pop up they're not necessarily siloed as a foreign threat or a domestic threat they can be both and if you don't have good communication within both critical like intelligence agencies then people aren't able to make the right decisions right so kind of just reflects on how an organization needs to be run so that the people who are making the decisions can make the best possible decisions and when you see things that are siloed like that you understand like hey this doesn't make sense like yes you need to assign responsibilities but at some point you need to connect and you know also like what we learned about in the you know the learning about intelligence reform I, I think about this all the time when I think about analytics and hockey right because there's so much analytics out there in hockey but what works for you what works for you you got to take every, I mean we could go through sport logic and they've got like a hundred different rows or columns of things but like what is the one page worth of information or the three four six stats that can help the coach make the best decision to try to win the game tonight in terms of deployment or what you're going to see from your opponent 
so when I, and I'm, I'm talking about you know you know comparing that to intelligence there's so much intelligence out there like here this is what's happened in Afghanistan today or this what's is 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 what we've collected from Iraq but like how do you distill that down to the lowest common denominator so that you can make the actionable decisions to help you succeed today right so it's the same type of you know it's just like a organizational you know uh task to take to take the the breadth of data and distill it down to something actionable. So yeah, those are the type of you know that's one example of of stuff that I learned at school and and applying it to you know to coaching hockey. I love that you brought up analytics because there certainly is uh, information overload and the way the game has gone. There are so many statistics now, but if you can't, as you mentioned, kind of boil them down distill them down then it, it, it's almost uh not valuable for you um right. and, and unusable right you know so you, but and like it there is value you, you'd be silly to ignore it just like just like you know an intelligence agency would be silly to ignore everything that they've collected you just need to you need to find the stuff that that you have determined is the most valuable find the things that are the most valuable and that are actionable so like that's kind of the you got to kind of find that line between what's interesting and what's like helpful, you know, like what's helpful. And there's stuff like, you know, that we, you know, that you know, I, I found that it, it really helped like this year in Seattle, like, you know, you take a look at your, you know, like we were, we were fortunate. We had um, our assistant general manager, uh, Jared Crooks, incredibly smart guy, um, uh, math major. And he had a, he had a really good way to have breaking down games and brought it through us and he had his own his own like model which essentially spit out a number for each individual players like impact in the game and also the team's impact and it can you know sometimes after a game the emotion can the emotion of the game can have you not seeing it super clearly one way or the other you like think you were awesome that night and then you kind of you know you see like oh, actually like this team actually had like a, they had 4.2 expected goals. We were only like 2.9 and yet we won 4-1 for whatever reason, right? So that can be like, okay, like that's, that's significant. Maybe we weren't quite as good as we thought we were. Why? Why? Right? Can, can we dig into that? Can we find like the relevant clips or, or message that we need to deliver to our players to help us win the next, the next night? And, and the opposite the opposite right like you could lose a game and be so angry that man like this is brutal like what was this guy doing like what like what happened and then you take a look at the stats after and be like actually you know we controlled a lot of this game like most of the time if we continue to play like that we're going to win the game which can like build confidence right so sometimes like and you know everyone always talks about like the process, the process, don't focus on the results, focus on the process. And then sometimes those analytics can back up the faith in the process, right? Whereas like if the underlying numbers suggest that you're strong, that's the best kind of long-term predictor of the success that you're going to have, even if you don't necessarily, even if the, the result that night doesn't necessarily indicate um, the, the result that you thought it did, if that, if that makes sense. It, it does. And I want to dive into your, your playing career, but just jumping back onto the coaching side of things, when you talk about coaching, you can just tell that you lose a passion for it. But when did that bug kind of 
come to be for you that maybe this is something I want to pursue after my playing career, uh, a coaching career? You know, like I, I mentioned Guy Gadowski already at, um, at Princeton, like he just had a tremendous, uh, tremendous effect on me, like as a, as a player and as a person, um, you know, he was hard on me at times, not as hard as he was in some other guys, but like he was, he was, he was hard on me. Um, but all, like never unfairly, like never unfairly, like, and, and then when, you know, when this, when I was meeting the standard, he was, I mean, so awesome for me. And just like his personality, he was just like so charismatic and he had, you know, like just a quality, like, like leader, just such a good like leader. And I just, his, his presence was just like really, really inspiring. And yeah, I just had a, you know, I've, his job of like pulling the team together and how close he helped us form as a team is part of the reason why I've got like, you know, like some of the relationships I do with my former teammates. And I'm really grateful for it, you know, to him for that. And, you know, like playing at college underneath him, you know, kind of what made me think that I think I want to, to do this someday. And, you know, during the during my playing career, like I was all in on playing, trying to make it as far as I possibly could. And, and then in the last, like, last couple of years of my playing career I started to think about transitioning to coaching and at that time too yeah like also had a couple other um you know mentor mentors kind of guide me along um Jeff Daniels uh Jordy Kinnear uh, spent spent time with me talking about talking about what um what a coaching life would look like when you're when you're done playing and what both guys essentially what both of those guys said is that it's the it's the next it's the next best thing it's the next best thing it's like the and they, it, they it's interesting that we talked to them at different times but they they said it and they still say it today like it's that you're you're just as close to the fire as you possibly can be without without playing but um yeah towards my last couple of years of of, of playing hockey in, in Charlotte. I was playing in Charlotte at the time. That's when I started thinking about uh, making the transition to, to, to coaching for the next chapter. So you finish up your collegiate career, you break into the ECHL originally, and you're just trying to get your feet under you, I'm sure, to try to establish a professional career. You go on and play, I believe, nine seasons of pro hockey, mostly spent in the American Hockey League. Once you got to that level, you stuck around. And you look at your career hard-nosed, tough, willing to do it seems like whatever it takes to help the team win. Maybe you picked that up as a kid playing junior hockey, being from Ontario, being from a, a blue-collar city. But you go to college, it's a different game. You come down to the pro level, you reincorporate that into your game. When did you kind of realize, if I'm going to make it at the professional level, I've got to have this element to my game? Or is this something that you always have? You know, I think it was, it was, I was definitely in there, but like you said, never had to do it before. And you, you want to know about like the, the moment where it was like, you really have to do it. it was probably like first paycheck ECHL or, or the moment where you kind of compute what that first paycheck is going to be. And it is not much. It's like, if you want to keep playing hockey, you got to find a way to improve and work your way up the ladder and, you know, wasn't going to score 50 goals. So I had to you got to find other things that you can do to contribute to the team winning. And, you know, you got to try to be as competitive as you possibly can to carve out a niche for yourself. Hopefully you're in the respect of the coach that you're playing for and the respect of your, you know, teammates. And 
do everything, find, find ways to contribute. You got to find ways to contribute so that you can stake that spot in the lineup and slowly try to claw your way, claw your way upwards. You see some of the most successful coaches at the NHL level who had somewhat of a similar background in terms of being somebody who would stand up for their teammates. I always look at Craig Berube, who's in St. Louis, as a guy who played that hard-nosed game. Even you can go back to Bob Bugner, who was here in San Jose. That was the style of play he had. Why do you think players who filled that role end up being great coaches? Good question. Um, Like, I don't know. I think it might have something to do with the guys that are – you know, really like putting their face and their hands on the line are off are oftentimes guys with less skill, but who just really really love it and they're willing to do any they're willing to do anything just to keep playing and to try to help the team win and try to stick around and survive. And you know, and then once the playing days are done, it's just they still need to get their hockey fixed. They just love it. So they've and they've also spent probably the majority of their career understanding that they need to be good teammates and they need to be good for like the 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 you know the for the for the group for congealing like the group like you need to kind of be a good glue guy like no one wants like a a, you know fourth line role player who doesn't score many goals who's also you know uh you know, not like not a good guy. You have to be you. You have to be a good a good guy. You have to you know you you have to work extra hard. You have to put in time before and after practice in order to um, to prove your worth. And then you just kind of yeah, some of those some of those attributes just kind of like spill over into attributes that can help you be a successful coach. You spent the last five years in the WHL with Seattle. You didn't play in the WHL. You didn't have much of a connection, I guess, to the league in terms of your playing career. But how do you end up landing in Seattle and lead us into, into how that came to be? That's your first coaching stop. And now you're coming to San Jose as your second spot. But how'd that all come to be? Well, you know, I'm forever grateful to, to Matt Odette, the uh, head coach in Seattle. We, you know, we, we played together briefly. Like it would have been my first year pro in Fresno one of his very last years as a as a player he's uh, 10 years older than me so we're about 10 years apart and you know connected as as friends and teammates then back in the day and you know kind of just kept in touch and my playing career was was um winding down he he kind of gave just gave me a, gave me a call and asked if I'd be willing to do it and we were living in Vancouver at the time Seattle seemed like a relatively like you know uh you know, feasible, like, move for my young family at the time, and, you know, Matt's just been so awesome, like, he's, you know, he started out as, a, as like, a as a friend, and he still is, but it's just, like, turned into, like, so much more than that, like, such, like, a, you know, mentor and, and teacher and uh, partner, like, he's, uh, you, it's, it was awesome these last five years, it's just been awesome working, working with him and under him, um, yeah, that's how it, that's how it, how it happened, he just gave me a call, I drove down, met him, met Russ Farwell, and um, just seemed like a seemed like something that I wanted to do. And yeah, as you mentioned, unfamiliar with with junior hockey, but I've loved I've loved every every second of it. Um, the kids are just so, they're just all in, all in on on hockey, and you know the the, the work ethic that I, and the, the the drive to to improve and get better. Um, it's just been special, 
special to watch. Like we were really fortunate this year in Seattle to have just like outstanding leadership. Like some of the the leadership from some of these some of the players is just is just amazing. Like better than like in lots of cases better than anything that I ever came across in pro like from some of the, from a couple of the kids on the team and really helped helped our team have success and it's, yeah I know it's been a, been a been a ton, ton of fun in, in, in junior hockey and in the Western League in particular. I find it so impressive how mature some of these kids are too. I remember when I was 20 years old I was uh, not as uh, far <laughs> along as these kids are. It's yeah. a, it's incredibly impressive how they deal with media, how how they navigate their lives especially at the early stages of their career. You played forward during your playing career and then you handled the defense, the penalty kill during your time in Seattle. What was it like to to go kind of to the other side, if you will, and, and try to coach a group that you didn't necessarily uh, have great familiarity with as a player? It was easy, actually. Um, so uh, I was a, I was a forward, as you mentioned, for my for my pro career. But I, I played defense in junior and uh, and in my first year at college, it was it was Gadowski at Princeton who turned me into a to a forward. So I had some familiarity, even albeit like quite a long time ago, and. Um, I thought the switch was easy, and you know, in large part due to, to Matt, because he was a defenseman his whole career and had experience as an assistant coach, helping mold. You know, he'd already worked with Shea Theodore and Ethan Bear, and like had had like a you know had a lot of success developing young D. So kind of learn, you know, learn from him, and and to a certain extent, it's just it's just hockey, right? Like when you're a hockey crazy guy, you can find ways to. To, to learn and when you're you know trying to be a lifelong learner you can find ways to improve your craft as a coach and yeah I know I thought it was it was it was easy and enjoyed it had a lot of fun you know working with different types of D you know like you know, I had you know my pride and joy is Tyrell Bauer you know had him since he was 15 years old and see him like get drafted sign his contract become the captain of our team like become a tremendous leader you know just and he plays a really hard hard physical tough brand of hockey you know we got a defenseman like that and then we got other guys like Kevin Korchinski like a off offensive you know playmaking play driving D it was a lot of fun working with different types of guys and just kind of figure it out uh, as the coaching journey progresses. And yeah, and now in San Jose, like, yeah, I'm excited to work with forwards again. As you mentioned, that's what I played for my whole pro career. So I think this will be an easy, you know, an easy kind of switch. And spent the last five years breaking down other teams' power plays. It's finding the ones that, you know, what worked and what didn't work. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, you find ones that were working really well and exploiting us at times, and then you try to, you know, harvest some of that learning and can hopefully like apply that to to the group that I'm going to be working with in in San Jose to try and give them some, you know, give them some some tools and some advice and how to how to have success in, in that department. We're talking to Kyle Hagel, Barracuda assistant coach, very gracious with this time I, I told you 30 minutes I think we're going to probably push more like an hour but I've really enjoyed talking to you okay. I, I listened to an interview the other day with with an assistant coach for the 49ers he had an offensive background he coached the defense though for several years then went back to offense and it allowed him as he described to almost reverse engineer right. when good, challenging good you're going to deal with the the power play so almost reverse engineer what they are trying to do in terms of penalty killing you do you see that as as something that will benefit you is you're able to break it down 
100, 100%, like that's an excellent term that you use, like reverse engineering. Like I guess that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. So no, that's a, that's a great, uh, great com- com- comparison. I want to ask you a little bit about your kiddos. You've got two little kids, your wife, you're bringing the family down the coast, if you will. Uh, you're staying on the West Coast, but you'll come down to California. I don't know if they've had a chance to, and you talked about some of the things your wife is looking forward to, but as you guys come down, you know, what's, what's the plan in terms of moving and settling in and what are the first steps for you and the fam? Yeah, just kind of got some of it finalized yesterday. Uh, you know, moving, moving, moving trucks coming in ten or eleven days. You know, pack, packing up everything, and then it's it's driving down to San Jose. And then basically, as soon as they pack up, we're gonna we need to get ourselves in the car and basically basically follow them follow them down there. We're gonna drive down from Seattle and uh, take yeah take a couple days. Um, hopefully, we'll have a couple nice spots to to stop we'll have to have to have to see how the littles do in the in the car the long drives can be challenging my wife drove from seattle all the way up to edmonton for the finals so i was like 14 hours and took a while took a while to get there you know with the you know with just with two little ones but um no excited for uh for a couple a couple you know st- you know stops along the way with them and just really really excited to to get there well, again, you were kind enough to join us, spend some time with us. It was really fun kind of getting an idea of who you are and, and some of your philosophies. You're all the way up in Vancouver. You're working on uh, fixing up a house right now. So nice enough to just join us on the fly while, while you're working. So thank you so much. We wish you safe travels down here to California. Great to meet you over Zoom, but look forward to meeting you in person. And, and thank you again for the time. Right on. Thank you for having me, Nick.